Hello everyone, it's December 10th, 2019. It's another episode where Ben is gone, then he magically appears, this time for an awesome interview with Kyla Edison on ISRU for Moon and Martian Materials Manufacturing, then he disappears again, but you can stick around for the whole show, and lift off! And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 239 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm not Ben. I'm Dennis. <laughs> yeah, and you're not Ben. Uh, yeah, so he's actually on his way to your neck of the woods, right? Yeah, heading to Phoenix or Tempe more specifically. But yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know if he's uh, in the air now or sitting in an airport having the time of his life or uh, exactly what <laughs> stage of his travels he's in as of this recording. But <laughs> Yeah, well, I can tell you that like if he's at an airport, he's just playing video games. So that's because <laughs> he had to like when we left D.C., from IEC, he had to wait a good five hours. He said, "Oh, I'm fine here." I'm like, "Really?" Because I don't think I, I don't think I can manage five hours in an airport. I mean, oh, I wow. can, and I have, but mm-hmm. I didn't like it. Yeah, I'm 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 so ridiculous when it comes to air travel. Where I I'm also a very get to the airport super early, like stupid early, and then just be kind of okay with that. So I kind of get where Ben's coming from, and I I'm pretty sure I don't know if I've ever done five hours, but I'll get there a good three pushing four hours just because i'd like to think um my principle is i want to be uh able to get pulled over by a cop or have a car break down or have something at that kind of level of time delay and still make my flight yeah so that uh had helped once (laughs) in my in my whole life all the flying i've done the only time that ever mattered was in pennsylvania trying to get from state college which is in the center of the state and about two hours from or two and a half hours from the airport in philly and my brakes froze on my car. Whoa. And I managed to still, you know, get it towed, get it warmed up and fixed and still made it to the airport on time. That's a very responsible way of, <laughs> you know, doing. See, I don't do that. I'm like, all right, what's the minimum amount of time I could get away with it? <laughs> and that's how I do it. <laughs> yep. I mean, I'll get to the terminal with like 20 minutes to spare. And that's, and that's you know. Oh, my like, goodness. And to me, that that's like optimal. So I don't have to wait around too long. And mm-hmm. I could just sit down for a second and then get back up and get on the plane. But yeah, that's not the smartest thing to do. <laughs> so no, no. That's... I'm sure that'll bite me in the ass eventually. Hey, you, you think about how much more time overall you've saved by, by you know, adopting that. Yeah. So living on the edge. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about Parker Solar Probe because, yeah, you know, there's exciting. not a whole lot else that's going on. But yeah, this is exciting. It's certainly more... Well, not planetary science, but solar science. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's it's unique and incredible as far as the feat of engineering goes. I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, surely during one of those previous times, we mentioned how try to have a spacecraft dive very very close to the sun in a Kerbal Space Program, and that you know is a challenge. And the fact that we're doing it in real life, where things are much harder than Kerbal, <laughs> kind of just shows how impressive this is. Right. I mean, it dates back to like. I think the 60s when they first had the concept and just we physically couldn't do it until now. I'm sure that there were several huge technical challenges, but is that just because of the problem with the heat shielding or just because of the orbital mechanics because you have to do all these very precise passes in order to, you know, drop the perihelion? Mm-hmm. I think I think it's the orbital mechanics was the real thing that kind of, yeah, that was that was basically what stopped us from pulling it off until now. And by us, of course, I mean humanity. <laughs> but uh, And so, yeah. well, so now I wonder what changed. Mm-hmm. Like, is it just having a more powerful rocket or is it something on board the probe itself? Ah, so it was, it was basically taking advantage of this swinging by Venus over and over and over again. Um, this wasn't really something that they kind of had looked into or figured out how to get this done. 
And so um, basically, even now, to kind of dive in as close as the solar probe, Parker Solar Probe goes, you still we still don't have the technology to do that. And so it just took, I guess, some uh, smart orbital mechanics, <laughs> non-different <laughs> non, uh, kind of orbital mechanics, our cousins, uh, the guys yes. that actually uh, crunch the numbers to... Because, uh, I mean, you got to... This this trajectory is ridiculous. It's it's called the V7GA. Uh, I, I'd i gone to a few sessions on Parker Solar Probe during uh, IEC. And so uh, it's V7GA, which is... Uh, seven Venusian gravity assists. And so the idea is that you just do a bunch of uh, Venus flybys and each time you're shed it, you're, you know, that's when the spacecraft is at its aphelion. So you're bringing in the perihelion closer and closer each time. And um, the, the tricky thing though is like, well, surely couldn't we have just done this in the 60s? Is that I remember seeing during the one talk a table of like, I think the table might have even been two pages or two slides long where there was by memory, I'm going to say something like 20-ish different perturbations in the trajectory of the orbit that they had to account for including relativistic effects. That's how close wow. to the sun it gets that, you know, it's not frame dragging. Somebody corrected me on Twitter when I tweeted that, that it's not frame dragging, but there's still other perturbations that happen. And so you got to account for those, you know, and then hit Venus on a dime that many times. It's impressive. <laughs> so it's all about precision, obviously. That's, that's my yeah. take, yeah. So let's talk about the science that we have so far. Uh, we both watched a Scott Manley video, which is great for a good summary. And then you have uh, some stuff from the journal Nature, which goes into more depth. But um, but yeah, like as you said, the probe has to make seven passes by Venus. And uh, it's done three perihelions so far but it's coming up on its third venusian pass i believe and so once that happens it will have a perihelion or a speed at perihelion of 109 kilometers per second which is insanely fast i don't Oof. know if that's still that's actually still i don't think that that's still the fastest fastest object ever uh, made yet i think that that's some other it was like back in the 70s i want to say i cannot remember the name of it but uh, some other solar experiment that brought the spacecraft very close to the sun and i want to say it was something like 75 miles per second which wow. has got to be more than 109 kilometers wikipedia redirects fastest man-made object to parker solar probe oh does it ah helios 2 is what you were thinking of yeah in 76 i mean you got the detail you That's got it. you got that right yeah you quoted 109 kilometers per second. Helios is only 70 kilometers per second. <laughs> only. Dang, that's a little over a 50% increase in speed compared to Helios. So Parker Solar Probe is coming up on its third pass with Venus. Does that mean that it's going to get even closer because they're going to drop the perihelion down even further? And so mm -hmm. we'll have an even faster speed? Okay. Yes. And And this is ridiculous. They're going to bring it down to basically a quarter of where its perihelia are now. So four, it's going to get within uh, 6 million kilometers. Wow. Right? 24, 24 is where it's at now, or mm -hmm. yeah, where the perihelion was. So, yeah. <laughs> that's close, and that's hot. Uh, so, mm -hmm. yeah. So they have to make sure, it, like, obviously, it has that big heat shield that always has to be pointed toward the sun. And I don't recall how they managed that, um, What as far as station keeping or, you know, keeping in the correct orientation, I guess I should say. Mm -hmm. But I believe that that might be the, the limiting factor on the lifespan of the probe is it mm. has to maintain you know that heat shield directly between the instruments and the sun it does peak around you know the edge of that shield because that's how it can take measurements although it doesn't always have to because there are certain things there are certain ways that it can take measurements without without having to look directly at the sun that's important <laughs> yeah we yeah we've got we've got things looking at the sun much further out you know what i mean like stereo mm -hmm. soho and all those so yeah. they can 
they can look at the disc and Parker Solar Probe specifically about the kind of near sun environment and the corona and the magnetic field and all that kind of exactly like you're saying, not not eyeballing the sun directly, but looking off to the yeah. side. So, yes, yeah, so these uh, four papers uh, in nature, uh, none of which I've read. I just uh, saw the abstracts of each and I read the nature uh, little piece that uh, was just kind of summarizing them. But the uh, they're all uh, kind of like, well, actually, the, the overall theme that I kind of picked up from this is that the sun's magnetic field is more messy and complex than we thought it was, essentially. Does that sound like a sensible summary? Well, yeah, that is the case. One thing that I wasn't clear on is, and perhaps no one is yet, is that what causes these weird perturbations in the magnetic field that cause this particular phenomenon, you know? Some of so, them yes. are still unknowns for sure. The first paper that they talk about is the uh, is measuring the direction and strength of the solar magnetic field. And so we can, you know, measure that out here kind of uh, in near Earth space, but if we go beyond the Earth's magnetic field, but diving in really close is kind of where things are interesting because uh, the sun doesn't, I mean, right, it's a you know, big ball of plasma, so it doesn't mm -hmm. uh, rotate rigidly. So its magnetic field is getting sheared at different latitudes. So that's kind of why it's, you know, you would expect there to be some level of messiness and complication. Uh, but as far as going really, really close, you know, we haven't done this before and been able to directly measure it. And so uh, based on the uh, results from the first couple encounters, where each encounter is kind of labeled E1, E2, E3, and so on, uh, this paper found that there's these rapid reversals in the direction of the magnetic field that the PSP is uh, passing through. And so these can switch either like in just a couple seconds or a couple minutes, suddenly the spacecraft is measuring the magnetic field pointing in an entirely different direction. And so these are, uh, you know, right termed the uh, switchbacks, uh, mm -hmm. which I hadn't heard of before, which is pretty cool. And uh, yeah, the, there's not really an answer as to what is responsible for them. But it looks like, I mean, you can imagine kind of, uh, yeah, th these sort of zigzags folding back on themselves. Maybe the magnetic field is kind of, I don't know, pulsing out in that sort of way. But From what I could tell, it seemed like it had something to do with the speed of the ions being thrown from the sun. So basically, you have some that are like moving at a faster speed or at first at a, a certain velocity, and then that same stream increases in speed. And so what you would have is essentially a switchback because you would have the solar plasma that's trailing, it would actually catch up and then it would pass. You know what I mean? Mm. And so that would cause a switch back. But it seems that it's actually the field that is causing this. But I was a little bit confused because, like, is it the field or is it the plasma that, I guess, follows those field lines? Because it seemed like it has something to do with the difference in velocity of the solar plasma being thrown off the sun. And that that's what caused it. So that's that's definitely one of the uh, – I think that was a different paper that got at that. But, yeah, okay. the, the, the plasma was moving faster uh, both – uh, in fact, the one that was specifically uh, that they wrote about the plasma ions and electrons was that during the reversals, yeah, kind of like like you said, the, the, the velocity of the plasma increases going both radially away from the sun as well as azimuthally. As and so that is really the kind of uh, smoking gun that there might be these, you know, I shouldn't say smoking gun, but that that's another piece of evidence that there are these S-shaped, you know, zigzags in both the field as well as the uh, ions and electrons that are being measured. And what you had said 
I'm not a solar scientist by any stretch. Sounds right to me. That's my understanding of it. But that's <laughs> yeah. still, but that that still doesn't answer the when I say that it's unknown. That still doesn't answer the why is the plasma behaving that way? Why is the magnetic fields behaving that way? Right? Like, I mean, you explained why the magnetic field and the plasma are both kind of giving you these zigzags. But as far as why do they get you those zigzags? Uh, from what I understand, uh, it's unknown and unable to read the paper. Just haven't had time to read the papers yet. I have to imagine that they've proposed some possibilities, but as for what they mm -hmm. are, I have no idea. My guess would just be that it just has to do with these natural perturbances in mm -hmm. the sun's magnetic field strength, because that does change and fluctuate, and it does all kinds of, you know, there's all kinds of stuff like bubbling on the surface and then being thrown off into space. And so, exactly, you know, exactly. But yeah. as far as why. The exact mechanism that causes all of that i mean yeah it's all very it's just it's just so complicated i mean i don't even know it's like you know plasma mm. <laughs> physics on a solar scale so um, oh, yeah. i don't know <laughs> yeah i did learn a new word though uh reading these is uh, a straw have you ever heard of this before oh uh, no i have not straw s-t-r-a-h-l yes yeah, yep. straw yeah that is the that's the term for basically a beam of electrons coming off the sun and so that's what they had been finding these straws are bent in these s shapes mm -hmm. so what what they're interpreting as a single coherent beam is what's getting kind of zigzagged. So, I mean, in that case, if you have a beam of electrons being bent, then that would be because the magnetic field is bent and that's what's causing it? Like that's uh, mm -hmm. the going theory? Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's so, it's so cool how they've complemented the instruments on board because the reversals, the switchbacks were measured by fields is the name of the instrument, fields, which is consists of magnetometers as well as sweep which is an ion counter and then there's another instrument that's a different kind of uh, uh ion counter type thing called um esis and so uh those basically are able to measure how is the magnetic field changing and then how is the uh, velocities of different types of ions and electrons changing and they're both finding these uh these switchbacks or s-shaped bands so it's, mm -hmm. it's a nice it's i mean right you don't you typically don't get just like one result and you say, okay, here's everything. You know what I mean? You you have a consilience of evidence pointing towards right. yeah. whatever kind of phenomenon you're checking out. So the third paper uh, was also looking at the ions and electrons. And this instrument was called, uh, uh, is the ESIS one, which I love that it has, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen as far as the naming of the instrument goes. Um, aside from that awful acronym we talked about the other day. Uh, but uh, this one actually incorporates the symbol for the sun in the acronym. So it's IS and then like a circle with a dot and then IS. And so you just say ESIS, but for whatever reason, when they write it down, you have a little sun symbol in the middle. Yeah, that's cool. I like that. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I've, never, uh, I've never seen that before. So this uh, ESIS uh, measurement, uh, which is also detecting, you know, protons, electrons, heavy ions, right? These cosmic particles coming from the sun found both uh, uh, flare particles and uh, coronal mass ejection particles, which is cool um, because, uh, right, like we talked about, you can see solar flares happening uh, with the other kind of space weather related satellites, as well as coronal mass ejections, where the difference between a flare and a CME is that a flare is radiation. The sun basically just emits a lot of uh, light, while a CME are when physical particles are released during an outburst. And a lot of times they come, you know, hand in hand. But um, the kind of what sounds like the uh, big finding from that particular study was that, you know, you can do a, uh, you know, a timing argument because the light is moving at the speed of light and the particles are moving very close to the speed of light. And so the path that they take 
when they left the sun until the spacecraft measured them was much longer than just, you know, taking the distance and dividing it by the speed of light. And so uh, the interpretation is that they must be following a much longer path rather than leaving the surface of the sun and just heading to the spacecraft as the pro as the crow flies, um, at least for the, the particles. And so that just hints at a complex geometry. But since we just talked about two papers involving switchbacks and S-band things, so maybe it's the same sort of thing, just coming again from a different direction, which is, I yep. love, I love when things come together nicely. <laughs> That's pretty neat. So like it's taking a more circuitous path mm -hmm. because we kind of think of things coming off the sun in sort of, you know, a very like radial way, you know? Yeah, right. Um, exactly. But it's not the case. Yeah. And then the final one, which uh, I don't know if you want to talk about that because that was pretty, pretty cool. So just like with Earth and there's a name for this and I already don't know it, but um, there's a lot of, you know, dust that actually surrounds the Earth. And mm -hmm. um, what's the name of this phenomenon? Oh, the Z of? zodiacal light? Zodiacal light. Yeah. After sunsets, you can try to see see if there's maybe a right. faint fuzz around the sun that isn't just scattered sunlight, it's scattered dust in the disk. Yeah, and so there's a similar phenomenon around the sun, except the interesting thing is that there does seem to be evidence that, like, as you approach the sun, uh, there's sort of a threshold where this stops, and the thought is that this dust is actually being, quote-unquote, evaporated, and I don't know mm. quite what that means. I guess it means more like, you know, incinerated, I'm not sure, yeah, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a point where that dust actually just turns into solar plasma. Right. So, so the idea for what what astronomers mean by dust is basically, I don't know, micron-sized particles. So they can still be microscopic, but if you're anything bigger than just you know a handful of molecules or ions or atoms, then you're dust. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so, right. I mean, and and that can contain you know, I mean, even something as small as you know a micron, little spherical. Yeah piece of dust that still has uh, i don't know how many countless atoms probably built in there mm -hmm. but um yeah so so yeah they're just being ablated into basically the constituent parts because the solar radiation i think just gets so so powerful that the dust can't exist. Yeah. yeah yeah that's a good way to put it tears it apart that's kind of like what we see i guess from earth like if we were to take measurements and observations of the plasma i guess we think that it all comes from the sun but some of it is actually i guess just dust uh being you know incinerated ah. and turned into plasma and thrown back out into the solar system or at least you know perhaps that is cool it does stand to reason because obviously hmm. you can only get so close to the sun before you're going to turn into plasma no matter what you are sure, <laughs> I sure. mean, like you could do that with a person right like if you just jumped towards the sun yeah you'd burn up but like you would actually have the electrons stripped from the nuclei and you know just because it's that hot so you would essentially become part of the sun's plasma mm -hmm. which is yeah. kind of a weird thought and i'm gonna earn my paycheck this episode for you know what i know about astronomy <laughs> i'm gonna drop another term at you the uh pointing robertson effect there's so basically with that one <laughs> it's basically uh so uh basically grains um dust grains orbiting around the sun are going to feel a drag force and spiral into the sun over time. And as a result, even if there's only a very trace amount of dust still left in our solar system, because I mean, it was much, much dustier early on when it was forming, mm -hmm. but whatever grains are still there are going to keep kind of moving in and maybe reach this dust-free zone, get incinerated and basically launched out as more plasma. So why is it that the dust grains are experiencing drag? I am going to say, not being 100% certain, uh, okay, actually, it has to do with the fact that the dust absorbs the radiation, but doesn't emit it isotropically. And so because the dust is moving in one direction, it's going to basically uh, emit what? 
if it's moving, let's just say the it's moving to the left, then that means it's going to have a little bit of a kind of beaming effect where it'll be it'll emit more radiation towards the direction of travel and less opposite it. And as a result, okay. it's because light carries momentum, it would feel an overall drag to the right because it's spitting out more photons in front of it to the left, then behind it to the right. And uh, I should have just stuck with in front of and behind. I didn't have to use left and right, but <laughs> it's too late. I'm in too deep. But yeah, so, uh, but that, I, I I believe that's, this is, this is going way back, but I believe that's the basic idea. Okay. I just got a little bit of a beaming kind of effect. I don't know if, if strictly speaking, that counts as a drag, like it really should be Maybe using the word drag force is not the right way to talk about it. Photonic drag or pho or photon Ooh. induced drag is that I a like that. term? <laughs> photon, yeah. <laughs> it is an, It is now. <laughs> yeah. So the Parker Solar Probe is going to be orbiting the sun for you know they have it planned for many 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 more orbits. So they are literally aiming for like if you, if I I'm just picking out this uh, timeline I'm seeing on the World Wide Web, and it's got 24 perihelia going all the way out to like 2025 so it's going to be going for a while and that's yeah that's coming all the way into six uh million kilometers or six gigameters i guess is the unit this one happens yeah. to be using <laughs> and and while that is awesome and you know it's going to be probing a lot more great stuff uh you know i'm sure there's gonna be wonderful science coming out for you know decades afterwards but isa has their own mission that's only gonna it's gonna launch next year uh or you know it's supposed to launch next year and this is the solar orbiter mission and if that doesn't ring a bell uh, it'll ring a bell if you've heard of it because it is the the one that's gonna basically keep inclining its orbit and ultimately basically get the first look of the solar poles that we've ever had oh wow because we're everything is you know orbiting in the plane roughly of the sun and so yeah that's going to be really cool this one's going to be 25 times farther than parker solar probe but going over the pole so again yeah this this complementary thing so it'll be looking at i mean right magnetic fields change you know as a function of latitude especially with the sun and so you'll be able to see what kind of complex things are happening near the poles as opposed to complex things happening at lower latitudes and so it's man we're gonna learn so much about the sun and that's launching in uh, february and you know so that's just a couple months away wow that recent yep on an atlas 5 yeah yeah atlas 5 took a uh, psp so cool yep Let's do another short, short and sweet. Just two of us. So what's the first one? Well, first up, we've got Running Out of Fingers successfully tests key elements of rocket reuse. Rocket Lab's 10th Electron rocket successfully launched on December 6th, delivering a number of payloads, including ALE-2, the artificial meteor shower package, FOSSASAT-1, a comm satellite intended to provide Internet of Things connectivity, and NOR-1A and 1B, which will demonstrate inter-satellite link technology. This launch also tested a key element of their intention to reuse the rockets, the re-entry control navigation equipment to guide the first stage on its descent. CEO Peter Beck said the re-entry went, quote, better than expected, end quote. Unlike SpaceX's propulsive landings, Rocket Lab plans to capture the Electron's first stage with a helicopter after the rocket deploys its parachute. That was very cool to watch. Yep. So <laughs> hopefully we'll see more. All right. And uh, in slightly less cool news, but still relevant, uh, Huntsville gets <laughs> a new solid rocket motor maker. 
It's kind of a tongue twister. So Aerojet Rocketdyne's new advanced manufacturing facility in Huntsville has received a new machine capable of winding carbon fiber cases for large solid rocket motors up to 72 inches in diameter and 22 feet long. Aerojet previously had manufactured its cases in Sacramento, but this move will improve efficiency and reduce cost. The first case to be manufactured will be for a missile defense target vehicle. Production is expected to begin in early 2020. All right, welcome to the interview. So today we have Kyla Edison. She is a geology and material science technician for Pisces Hawaii. And I think first, because I wasn't smart enough to pull up uh, Pisces on the on Google, <laughs> what does Pisces stand for again? Um, the Pacific International Space Center for Exploration Systems. Thank you. Very practice delivery. Um, so we uh, we met Kyla, or at least uh, um, Richard Durden met Kyla at IAC uh, a month or two ago, I guess. And um, she had some pretty cool things to show off. And in particular, we're going to be talking about ISRU today, which is pretty cool. So uh, welcome, Kyla. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So um, why don't you tell us about the work that you're doing? Okay. Um, so I live on the big island of Hawaii, which um, actually turns out to be a really good analog site for the moon and Mars. The geology here, the rocks in particular, are... Um, chemically and mineralogically almost identical to what you would find on the moon and Mars. So I can use this place as kind of like a simulation to um, make materials that I can apply to the moon and Mars if we were ever to go. So um, basically what I do is I go around the island. Um, the island is made up of five volcanoes, each of which have their own chemical signature, their own lava flows, that kind of thing. And so um, I go around the island um, mostly to quarries and I take samples of their aggregates, which they all sit on their own um, lava flow. And then I characterize those lava flows based on age, location, um, chemical variants, um, that kind of stuff. And then um, I do, uh, I can, um, take x-ray analysis of the, these rocks and then um, match them up with their Martian or lunar counterparts so that I can say like, okay, these lava flows are very similar to uh, these ones on the moon or Mars. And then from there, um, I take that aggregate, I grind it down into a fine powder and then turn it into building materials, specifically right now, just tiles. Um, I do that um, through a process known as sintering, basically taking rock dust and baking it like you would a cake, except at really high temperatures. And then from there, I come out with my my tile. And, and so uh, I, I was very excited when uh, when Richard handed me one of your tiles because you had brought some samples to IAC. Mm -hmm. And it was smooth and it felt really nice and it, it had a nice, uh, a nice density. And it reminded me of nothing so much as polished concrete, which is actually a material that I work in artistically. And so if, if this is a cake that you bake, are you adding eggs? Do you need any, oh. anything other than rock dust? So right now, um, all I use are high ceramic molds and then just my, um, aggregates. There's nothing in, 
in it. It's literally just dust and heat. Um, I am looking, however, into using binder applications, um, just a chemical binder to get rid of the molds. The molds are extremely inefficient and expensive, and we're trying to get away from uh, any like waste material. Um, so as of now, there's there's nothing added, um, and hopefully we can find a binder that would help us get away from the molds. But right now it's just dust and heat. I say, Kyle, I'm trying to get a good sense of what this looks like. How big is the sintering equipment? Like what? Like is this an oven? I mean, like yeah. So it's a high temperature electric kiln. Um, basically, you could fit two sitting people inside. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's pretty big. <laughs> um, and, and so right now you're you're baking tiles, not bricks. Is that just because um, you... Yeah, it's tiles. We were baking bricks. It was easier, actually, to bake bricks because you use a lot of the material. Um, I moved on to tiles, um, actually, because we don't want to just use this for the moon and Mars. We also want to use it for earthbound applications. So I was challenged with, can you make something uh, like a very thin tile, about a half-inch tile? And I was like, well, I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> that sounds hard. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it turns out you can. And so um, once the first tiles were coming out, you know, it was like, wow, these are actually really pretty. And so uh -huh. um, we just kind of moved <laughs> on to the tile and seeing like, how thin can we make them? How big can we make them at that at that thickness? Yeah, that kind of thing. So right now, mostly mostly focusing on tiles. So what are these uh, terrestrial applications? Uh, anything uh, in particular? Um, so right now we're still trying to figure out what can we use this stuff for like how can we make this useful for earth and we've found a couple of different things actually you know we've polished them up and they are so very pretty when they're polished um so mm -hmm. we're thinking like <laughs> countertops you know i have a lot of people yeah. who are like so when do i get my countertops mm. um <laughs> yes that i'm one of um, them <laughs> <laughs> How cool would that be? Oh my goodness. Right? Yeah, I kind of want to brand it as like a, a lunar countertop, you know, just to give it that little mm. niche. Mm. Um, <laughs> But yeah, we're also looking into like kitchen applications, you know, like does this hold heat well or, or you know, um, um, how durable is this stuff? Can it be used for uh, sidewalks or, or infrastructure, that kind of thing? And, and what are some of your findings so far? Well, so far um, we're finding that this is an extremely durable material, which is really good for the countertop thing, um, especially and also for tiling. You know, you don't want something that's going to crack, um, especially under stress or anything like that. And we're finding that this stuff, it it doesn't we've we've tried so many things on it and it just doesn't seem like <laughs> it doesn't seem like it wants to uh break under pressure very easily or you know it, it seems to be uh impervious to heat and and stuff like that so we're finding out all these properties of, about this stuff and then through that figuring out like wow what else can we do with this stuff and then how can we manufacture this stuff that would be really cool because right now it's just me and an oven and so like i said it's it's very inefficient <laughs> Exactly, have a, a economies of scale yet? Yeah, <laughs> I actually have a, a kind of basic question because I, I did take a, an online geology class years ago. But what is basalt? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so basalt is an igneous rock. It's actually um, the most abundant rock on the planet. Um, it's also something that we mm. see a lot in outer space. Um, a lot of the terrestrial planets are uh, mostly made out of basalt. It's um, basically what you would think of as lava. So it starts off as lava. 
it's erupted um, from volcanoes. It's not like granite where like granite has like these huge crystals. It, it's like a fine grained, very uh, gassy rock um, that started its life out as as lava. It's really interesting stuff. Um, when I first started, you know, I just kind of thought like, oh, basalt is basalt. And a lot of people think that basalt is just a, a, a rock, right? It's one type of rock. Mm -hmm. And what we're finding is um, that no, <clears throat> you have different types of basalt. Um, basalt actually tends to just be a blanket term, especially in the ISRU community. You know, you have, uh, I don't know if um, you guys know anything about mineralogy, but basalt is made up of uh, plagioclase, olivine, and pyroxene. And these are really high temperature crystals that have to form in a magma chamber. And so, yeah, just, it starts off as magma, erupted as lava. Um, the entire island of Hawaii is made out of this stuff. Um, so so then you, I'm assuming, I mean, you, you said that you go to quarries to get it, but like, I'm, I'm going to imagine you like stepping outside and scooping some up off the ground and, <laughs> and then, and then you grind it down. How fine do you have to grind it? And I'm, I'm guessing that the voids, uh, like all the air bubbles make that an easy process, relatively speaking. Yeah. Um, so I actually can use, um, I've gotten to the point where I can use all kinds of different sized grains. So for the nice flat top, that's going to be uh, 63 microns. So it's a very, very fine dust. But I've also been able to make um, tiles that are made with 500 micron. Mm -hmm. So that's like your, your kind of like pebbly stuff. Yeah. And so what we're finding is with the, the smooth stuff, you know, just like a smooth surface, it's going to be very slippery. Whereas with the coarser grain material, you actually start to have like a textured top. So, you know, there's a lot more grip, but we've yeah. um, polished all of this stuff um, and they all come out really, really nice. And so I've just been playing with all the grain sizes, seeing like what I can do with this stuff. But it did start with 63 microns. And so that's why um, all my samples were very, very smooth. So so are you um, grinding and then filtering or and, and then once you get once you get your grades out, like once once you get it to the size that you want, are you doing like the big stuff at the bottom and the fine stuff at the top or are you just picking one grain size and going with it so we've actually tried all all of those and so what we're actually finding is that if i use say a coarser grain it's a lot easier to work with because you have to think i'm turning it back into lava and so if you have a fine dust and you subject it to these really high temperatures it begins to become very runny and mm. it begins to crystallize so that's actually something that isn't desirable when firing it. Whereas the coarser grain stuff seems to be a lot easier to work with in terms of it not wanting to flow as much. Um, but I have tried just the spectrum of everything and I'm still looking for the best method to create hmm. this stuff and what else I can create using different grain sizes, different thermal profiles, um, that kind of stuff. That's really cool. Um, what what does your grinder look like? Like I'm assuming you can't just put this in a ninja blender and... and Oh, right. <laughs> right. So I actually have a rock crusher. Um, it's just a um, gas powered crusher. It's got like a huge, like a huge drum that you feed the aggregate into. And it's got uh, these steel chains that just kind of like move around like crazy. And yeah, and then uh, the particles collide and, and they begin to crush. Um, and then from there, I just throw all of that into buckets and then use what is known as a sieve stack 
to separate mm -hmm. all of the grain sizes. And then, um, so sorry, I, I'm fascinated by machines. So uh, your your grinder does it does it spit out a fairly uniform size? I mean, I know that you're having to to use a sieve stack, but yeah, um, are you having to regrind a lot of things to try to get the the particle size that you're looking for? So if my aggregate say is four thousand microns, that's a pretty big chunky aggregate. It's probably going to be able to crush it down to about five hundred microns with you know uh, some dust and stuff like that. Um, so I do have to run it through quite a bit to get it to finer grains. So yeah, again, it just depends on the aggregate. The I have some material that is predominantly 500 microns, but if I want this material, say, in finer, I have to let it run for longer, I have to put more material in, and I have to keep mm -hmm. running it through as much as I can. Um, so it, yeah, again, just depends. And, and I'm sure that you're using this particular system because it's what was available. Do you, do you yeah. know what the industry likes to use like what like what potential processes are available to you if you you know start getting bigger or you know hopefully design a mission to go to mars or the moon so i know that um say quarries they have these big industrial rock crushers that can get it down to a fine powder that's how i actually used to get my my finds was um this giant rock crusher from the quarry they already had it i would just come and take it so i think that's one way if i were to do this on a larger scale is just have a giant rock crusher. But for the moon and Mars, the regolith is actually, you have different sizes of regolith, but there's a lot of dust there. So I'm not too sure. Um, and the funny thing is, is I always tell people like the way I'm doing it, like I've said before, is wildly inefficient. Um, and really it's more of a proof of concept. Like I'm doing it, I'm having to MacGyver all of this stuff just to make <laughs> this, this work the way I want to. And so it might not actually be um, this process applicable to the moon or Mars. Um, we're not going to take, or in my mind, I wouldn't um, take a giant kiln to the moon or Mars, right? Yeah. It's just probably yeah, yeah. not the best <laughs> idea. And so, yeah, um, I guess the easy answer to that is I'm not sure, um, just because I'm still proofing this concept. I do want to move on to things like microwave sintering or, um, yeah. or vacuum sintering, for example, because I'm only firing at atmosphere in air, whereas, you know, that's not going to be the case on the moon or Mars. I was just trying to prove, can this be done and can it be done yeah. consistently? And then from there, um, the next step would be like high altitude centering or vacuum centering, and then maybe eventually adding gas to the kiln uh, just to mm -hmm. recreate the moon and Mars environment. So I, I guess I would like to know like how this might be used for somewhere like the moon or Mars. But as you just said, you're not entirely sure because, you know, they're not exactly analogous. So um, do you have any plans? I'm maybe trying to get a, to try to get a hold of some other materials that are much more similar. They might not be as available, but maybe if you could, you know, I mean, I doubt you could contact NASA and ask them for some moon dust. They're probably, oh. they're, they're probably not going to say yes. But so actually, I actually so I don't just um, center Hawaiian basalts. I have actually gotten simulants. There's a wide variety of simulants out there, and what's actually funny is um, one of the simulants comes from here in Hawaii. So I actually just kind of cruised down there, um, got a permit, and was like, okay, I'm going to take the small samples I don't have to call NASA. Um, so I have been playing around with simulants and trying to figure that out. But right now, because of my the finding the terrestrial applications as well, we've been focusing on uh, the aggregate that's been giving us the best results. And so that's the aggregate, the the tile that I um, gave a sample to, I think it was Richard. Richard, yeah. Um, so that one's our best stuff. But right now I'm still currently trying to figure out like, okay, this is more Martian or lunar-like. Um, how can I make this 
stuff into the same into similar grade or the same grade as that tile that you guys have. So uh, to kind of edge up to uh, ISRU applications, you, you, you know, you talked about a couple of different ways of applying heat to your material. Um, but earlier you mentioned that you were talking about maybe using a binder. Are you thinking about, because as soon as you say binder and not using a ceramic mold, the first thing I think of is 3D printing. Is that kind of the direction that you think about having? So yeah, in a way. So I've, I've never done 3D printing myself, but there is direct application for the people that are doing 3D printing. A lot of the things that I have seen um, that's been 3D printed with basalt, they use binders to get it um, to print, right? But I think a lot of these binders are some kind of polymer, uh, plasticky. And so if we were to go to the moon or Mars, I don't think that would be maybe yeah. the best way to go about it. I'm interested in finding, can I make a binder? Um, is yeah. there anything that the basalt has within it that I can use as a binder? So I'm currently looking at that right now. But, you know, for terrestrial Earth-based stuff, you know, the polymers are fine. But I'm always thinking about like, okay, if I were to be on the rocket right now, headed towards Mars, you know, what can I bring with me and what can't I? And so trying to eliminate as much as I can and then just worrying about it when I get to Mars is ideal. I think that's the way you want to go about it. The other thing about basalt when you 3D print it and when you even center it is it develops this layer of glass. And I have found that if your if your tile, your construction material starts to glassify, it's more likely to crack under pressure. Or in my case, whenever it glassifies in the kiln, which sometimes happens, it completely shatters, which is just <laughs> it breaks my soul a little bit every time that happens. Um, <laughs> so trying to move away from uh, like, how do I get this to stop? Uh, the word is vitrify. How do I get this, this to stop vitrifying on me? And I mean, it's it's just a basic rule of lava. Um, I spent a lot of time uh, when the volcano was erupting and when there was lava flows here on the island, spending a lot of time on the lava flows. And so you have to understand that this lava, when it erupts, is around 2,150 degrees Fahrenheit compared to 80 degrees here in Hawaii, that's, it's freezing for lava. And so it flash pools, creating glass. And so that's true if you 3D print it or you center it as well. So trying to figure out how to get away from that vitrification, that glassifying is um, the challenge that we all face. So so is is annealing the answer? Like what, right. what so, keeps it from doing that? Right, so annealing usually is how, how you would do that. The Czech Republic has, have been uh, casting basalt for a really long time. And that's one of the ways that they get away from that classification is to anneal it. And so just for just for our listeners, annealing is is slowly cooling, right? Yes. Yes. And, and what kind is. of time scale are you talking about for your annealing process? Right. So for me, from getting the basalt into the kiln to taking it out as an end material takes about three and a half days. And so that's so you, a this long is this time. is like so so that's pretty close to like what it takes to anneal like glass, like glass sculpture. Mm -hmm. So like th this is not just like a, oh you know we turn the oven off and just kind of leave it. Like you're having to slowly turn down the temperature of your oven. Yes. And it's, again, just a basic rule of geology. I mean, you turn that temp you turn the, the kiln off at a really high temperature. And even though it's still hot in the kiln and it takes a long time for it to cool, that's flash cooling your, your basalt. Mm -hmm. Basalt is such a finicky, high maintenance rock to work with 
that yeah it mm. it wants to cool as slow as possible a lot of rocks want to do that so if you think of mm. granite for example um you have these big crystals and it's such a hard stone and that's because it's spent millions of years cooling mm. millions and so using that idea that basic geology idea that's why um it takes three and a half days because I basically just tried to cool it as slow as possible. And is that just that you reduce the temperature gradients across the material? Yeah. And it also allows for crystallization to occur, which you want. Um, you want the binding of crystals. You want um, you want them to grow to a certain size without, um, without bursting the material. And so thankfully with basalt, it doesn't usually have big crystals to get in the way. So just letting it cool really slowly will kind of have those crystals kind of lock in together, at least uh, kind of fuse together, fuse the surrounding particles. So there are still changes happening during that annealing process. It's not like you have your finished product and you're trying to save it. It's that mm -hmm. you're continuing to alter the substance. Yes. Um, and, and so you said that, you know, annealing is what you're doing right now, but you hope that... Um, uh, that adding binders might be able to let you reduce the annealing process? Yeah, not only reduce the annealing process, but maybe even reduce the like the energy that we're using because wow. it is a high energy intensive um, process. And like I said, especially if we want to use it here on Earth, we need to, one, bring the temperature down, um, especially if we want to manufacture it on a large scale. Um, two, we don't want waste. Like that is one thing that I am dead set I want, I don't mm. want waste. Um, I don't mm. want to spend unnecessary money on buying molds or wasting unnecessary time creating the molds. Um, just trying to cut all of this, um, these things, these things out to make it more efficient and yet still retaining that very durable, very pretty tile. Um, and so, yeah, looking into binders, hopefully hoping, so hoping that that, <laughs> that does help. <laughs> so, so what kind of binders do you think will be available um, in these other environments? Like, and and what what is available here on earth like i mean the only thing i can think of is like oh well if you use limestone you can make concrete but that's a totally different thing than what you want yeah, to do yeah right um so i'm actually not sure yet um it's something that i'm i'm we've actually just started looking into um and like the idea came from 3d printing right um we know sure. a lot of people that are doing 3d printing and it was like well i wonder if this will work for centering too so it's a whole other direction that this, this project is going to take. Um, just going out there, seeing what kind of binders are out there, um, and just trying them all and seeing what we can do. And then mm -hmm. doing that characterization again, what, um, what resources are there on the moon and Mars? And so I guess my next step would be just to um, go back to my uh, basalt chemistry and look at like, can I use maybe, I don't know, volcanic glass? Or can I use, um, is there something I can extract from the basalt that could be used mm -hmm. as a binder? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a project that I'm hoping to start on. So with the samples that you've created so far, what types of various um, like physical stress tests have you done? Because I'm kind of wondering how useful this might be, but that kind of depends on the mechanical properties right. of it. Um, so, so far, um, our first generation material and our second generation material, um, they have been uh, structurally tested Lecturally and compression, compressive strain. Um, and the uh, sample that I gave Richard is our second generation, or 
well, I guess more like our second or third generation material. That actually hasn't been structurally tested yet. But when we first started playing with this stuff at this at this temperature, like I said, it used to it came out cracked. It would always shatter. And that was before we figured out kind of the process to make this stuff. But we still had it tested, um, even though there was cracks and, and weird things going on with it. Um, and it came out to about on par, uh, maybe just a little bit uh, more durable than residential concrete or yeah, sorry, specialty concrete, specialty concrete. Huh. And so that is really, really durable. Yeah, and so the more we figure this out, um, the the more testing that we do on it, we're actually becoming quite surprised at just how durable this stuff is. Um, we recently um, did, uh, what is it, heat capacity testing, um, uh, thermal conductivity, those kinds of tests. And I mean, it, it just keeps holding up. It, it kind of seems like it any test that I throw at it, it's just like, okay, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I'll be uh, looking forward to seeing your, uh, your, uh, is not, are the, does this count as a ceramic? I'm not sure. So yeah, that's actually um, something that we've been talking about is like, is, does this count as a ceramic? And I mean, kind of, yeah. Um, it's just, we're using basalt instead of like clays or, or something like that. Um, but yeah, I would, right. I would say that this is very much a ceramic. Okay. So I, since, since we're talking about all these potential modifications that you could do, um, I, you've talked a little bit about the chemistry behind sintering, but I was hoping you could maybe give us a, um, like a sintering for dummies. Like when you put, you know, when you put this dust in, in the oven, what's actually happening to it? It's not like you're putting, um, you know, uh, PET pellets, you know, like plastic, mm -hmm. like water bottle pellets in an extruder, heating them up, they just kind of merge and then you extrude them into whatever shape you want. Um, there, right. There's chemistry going on here that's fundamentally different to that. Yes. So, um, so one of the things that uh, separates my type of sintering, well, the, the material that I'm sintering um, from other things that you would normally center, um, like metals and stuff. My stuff is made out of crystals, uh, whereas others are just a fine particle of the same, of like a homogeneous material, right? So basically what you have are these dust particles, let's just call them dust particles, um, that are just kind of free-floating by themselves. I give it a little press, you know, to kind of make them uh, compact against one another. But when you put it in the oven or the kiln, um, these particles begin to fuse. And so that's what gives it the, uh, turns it into the tile and gives it that nice texture is you have these particles that are starting to fuse together and there is some pore space between them, but you're closing that pore space from when they were free floating to much smaller now that they're fused. Chemically, it's more to do with uh, the basalt itself. So what we're finding is if you have a basalt that has, say, more plagioclase than, um, than another basalt, that tends to work a lot better because you have to think about crystal melting points. So mm -hmm. all the crystals are different. They form a little differently from one another. They form at different temperatures. They have different properties from one another. And one of those properties is melting point. So a crystal, a very common crystal here in Hawaii and on the moon and Mars is something called olivine. And it is a very, very pretty crystal, but it is a nightmare. Its melting point is over 3,400 degrees Fahrenheit and then coming nowhere near that temperature when I center. So we're finding if you have an abundance of this mineral and if they are quite large, they are just sitting there in the material. 
they're not fusing with the other particles around them, creating these huge voids. And so what I found is when you, you do have to have like the perfect recipe of basalt to make it work, you can't just go around and say, oh, here's a basalt, I'm going to pick it up, center it, and go on about my day. Um, it, it simply doesn't work like that. You have to be very aware of your mineralogy and you have to be very aware of um, the ratios between all of them. So like I said, you want something with a high plagioclase. Um, maybe a lower lower olivine and so like with um, metal sintering like I said it's it's basically just one material and so it has one melting point and so you can you can fuse it you can you can fire it up and then you have this material and you're done whereas with my stuff it's been uh, basically me pulling my hair out trying to figure out <laughs> why something's not working or why this basalt from Kona doesn't work but this basalt from the this mountain over here works uh yeah <laughs> and so how do you analyze the contents of your basalt so to start off with i run it through something called an uh energy dispersive x-ray fluorescence that's uh Ooh, edx uh, edxrf for short it's literally what it sounds like it's an x-ray um you make uh these little pellets out out of your your material you throw it into this x-ray and you bombard it with with x-ray and what you get back are um, your 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 oxides, your chemical oxides for the basalt um, in a weight percentage. And then that data I can plot into um, what is known as an IUGS uh, graph. And it's a graph that's used widely through geology for this kind of thing to determine what kind of rock do you have? What are we looking at? Um, and so I'm able to plot it on this graph as well as Mars and the moon and see where these things fall. And then decide from there, like, okay, I'm seeing that this basalt works better, but this one doesn't. And then go to NASA's public websites and be like, okay, match this stuff up. If Hawaii is here and I have the same kind of stuff for Mars, then boom, this should be this should be what works. But then you have to take it a step further and look at mineralogy because the EDXRF stuff doesn't tell you mineralogy. It only tells you uh, chemical variances. So then I have a different x-ray that I use <laughs> called an XRD or x-ray diffraction. And that actually goes and same kind of idea. It looks at instead of chemical variances, it looks at mineral abundances in weight percentages. And the data that gives me back says, okay, you know, this is how much plagiarism you have. This is how much olivine you have. Um, and so through those two data sets, I can see and pinpoint exactly what what recipe, what chemical abundances I need to create these these tiles. And so it's a huge trial and error type of thing where, okay, I have all this data, so I know what rock I'm looking at, and then I go and center it and see what happens. But then too, I also have to think about thermal profiles. So what temperature is this going to fuse at? What what temperature is this going to make the best material without using too much energy? Um, one of the things that we really value in um, in building materials on other planets that don't have magnetospheres um, is radiation protection. And mm -hmm. you know we talk about lava tubes on the moon being a good place because mm -hmm. you get a ton of rock between you and the big bad universe. So I'm assuming mm -hmm. that there's some level of radiation protection inherent in these tiles. Um, have you thought about that and how does it compare to I guess the unannealed version of these materials yeah so we that's actually something that um, 
Pisces has been thinking about for years, actually. Um, we used to do a lot of field characterization, um, looking for Hawaiian lava tubes to compare them to what we would find oh. on the moon and Mars. Yeah. So actually, that's what I started doing when I was an intern for Pisces, <laughs> was going out in the field, looking for these lava tubes, and then being like, how do they fall apart? Can they be used for um, equipment storage? Can we put people in there? Um, you know, if there's a radiation storm. And I mean, all signs kind of point to, yes, basalt is a very good protectant of, of radiation. To what extent right now, I don't know. Um, and that's what a lot of the, the testing that I'm doing right now is consisting of, especially with thermal conductivity and heat capacity and, um, and, and that kind of stuff. But yes, um, we are really looking at um, if we make this stuff on the moon and Mars, we are going to, we're looking at making um, launch pads, but also, right, what can we, what else can we do with this? Because if it can be used as a launch pad and it's not being affected by the blast of the rocket, then that's a pretty good indicator that, you know, it's, it's a pretty good shield of just about anything as well. And so... Mm -hmm. If I can figure out how to make this stuff <laughs> on the moon and Mars at the same at the same uh, level that the stuff I have now is, then yeah, I mean, I see a potential for using it for um, like shielding a habitat or, you know, I don't know, making a garage for your equipment. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that yeah. Um, so I guess short answer is I'm not 100% sure, but I have a really yeah. good feeling. <laughs> well, and that, that's an exciting place to be, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's cool. Okay. So one of the things that I really loved about um, holding your sample in my hand was how uh, was how tangible it made this process. I mean, I, I could look at it and I could inspect it and I could learn just by looking at it. And so I, I think that that feeling is really important to try to convey to listeners. So um, I would love to hear about, um, uh, well, I, I was hoping that you could compare your products as they are now, these tiles to um, to a concrete tile as sort of a jumping off point to try to get this understanding into somebody's head who isn't holding one of these tiles. Mm -hmm. So I think with concrete, like if I'm thinking like concrete uh, sidewalks and stuff like that, that, you know, um, on a, you know, there, we have uh, seasons on earth that, <laughs> that widely affect how we build things. And so if you think about a sidewalk or you think about a road, for example, if you have a really hot summer and then a really cold winter and then a hot summer, cold winter, you have these materials that are expanding and contracting, which then eventually lead to cracks and flaws, right? That you eventually have to go and um, fix like with some kind of, you know, like a, a filler or, or a bonding agent or something like that. Um, with this stuff, um, we haven't gotten to test it as much in this regard, um, but this stuff doesn't seem so much like it It has those kinds of problems. It doesn't seem like it, when it is a end material, it doesn't seem like it really wants to expand too much or contract too much, which is good. Um, you just kind of want it to not move around as much. So I think compared to concrete, and especially with concrete, you have to add a bunch of stuff to it, a lot of acids, a lot of other things. With this stuff, you don't have to do any of that. And it's still an incredibly durable material. Um, and so that's why, like right now, um, I'm looking into using it for something like sidewalks, see how it holds against the test of time. And, you know, well, what if we could use it for that and get rid of 
you know, these bad additives and stuff. Um, so I guess that was just me rambling for, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, and that's, that, that's a very timely thing to think about because we're getting to the point where we're seeing, um, um, sand costs go up because we've been building so much concrete. Yeah. All right. Well, Kyla, thank you so much for spending all this time with us and, I think that this is really exciting and I, and I hope that our listeners have been as excited as I have been. Um, we have two traditional final questions. The penultimate question is where would you like to be found on the internet? Um, you can find me at pacificspacecenter.com, um, LinkedIn or Instagram. Um, if it's Instagram, geologeek uh, for the username. And on my Instagram, I post fun science experiments, outreach and education and arts relating to space science and geology. Great. Uh, I am subscribed to you right now. And your final question. If you could bring one object with you into space, what would that be? My Nintendo 3DS. Fast. That's a record. I love it. I think that is a record. Right out the gate. I was actually thinking about this the other day. I was like, man, what would I miss? I was like, oh, video games. Uh, so what what are you playing right now? What's Animal Crossing? Animal Crossing. Okay, cool. Oh, good, good. All right. Uh, well, again, thank you. This was absolutely delightful. Yes, thank you so much. Moving right along to this weekend's space flight history. So you're going to take this one. Ben, I believe, was Ben the one who came up with the clue? And then Ben did come up with the clue, which I had to do some researching to figure out because he didn't actually tell me what the answer was. But we had some winners, and so I used them as a first pass to figure it out because, as usual, I was not able to get the clue. But Yeah, I mean, in, actually, this one seems pretty obvious now that I know what the answer is. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. yeah, a weather... Because I was thinking a weather satellite, because the clue was, crap, what was it? Uh, what's the use of a... Uh, what's the point of a weather balloon with a sample rate of 75 seconds? Yeah, there you go. So... Yeah. I mean, one of the coolest space missions ever, really. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so we had four winners uh, that I was able to track down. If I missed anybody, again, uh, we will give you the shout out next week. Uh, but uh, congratulations to Ben Hallert, Cy Kyle, Anderson DeNova, and Christian Lowe. Uh, with a bonus extra win for Ben Hallert, who uh, gave a beautiful little poem with his uh, answer. Uh, It was, quote, There once was a probe sent to Venus. The Soviets' interests there were the keenest. It inflated a sensing balloon, and at 4 BPS it would croon until 270 seconds later it would reach completeness. Okay, well, first of all, that's actually a limerick, but yeah, that's very, that's very, very good. I, I guess a limerick is a type of a poem, but I just think of it as something separate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that's very I thought, creative. I thought one of the, I thought some of the lines were a little long to be a limerick, but uh-huh. it, it definitely the first it does read kind of limericky. I think the syllable count is kind of pushing it there, but I mean, like you can make it work. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's a it's a space limerick. We're not writing teachers, so we're not gonna. Get on anybody's case. That will ha- that will have to be our next book giveaway contest is write us a space limerick. <laughs> Why not? Sounds good to me. Yeah, so this was, uh, as we've alluded to, right, a space mission uh, weather balloon. What's the connection? Well, it was the launch of Vega 1. So Vega 1 launched on December 15th, 1984 on a uh, Proton K from Pad 39 at Site 200 in Baikonur. And the, ter- uh, the word, you know, Vega, the name of the mission, doesn't come from, you know, the star Vega, which as English speakers might recognize, but rather was combined from uh, the Russian words for uh, 
Venus and Haley. And so, uh, David, would you like to do the pronunciations? Uh... Well, it's it's not like my Russian pronunciation is that much better, but mm-hmm. you have a transliteration there, um, or a tran- I don't know, a uh, what do they call it? A romanization. Yeah, you have a romanization there. Um, but yeah, it's just a I'm guessing Venera and Galia. That's a hard one to say. Galia. Ah, would, Galia. To be honest, I would I would have to type it into like Google Translate because I might be getting I might be stressing the wrong syllable there. But yeah. In uh, mm. Vinera in Galia. There you go. Just, just you know, do your best. That Russian sounded impression. legit, right yeah. there. Yeah. So that's yeah the 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 VE from uh, uh, Venus Venera and the GA or Gamma A from uh, Halley's Comet. So this uh, right was part of a, a duo. There's Vega One, Vega Two, but uh, Vega One is the one that this clue is referring to. And uh, about six months later, on the 11th of June, 1985, the descent module reached. Uh, the Venusian atmosphere. It was actually dropped off a couple days earlier, but then finally began it began its proper descent on the 11th of June, and uh, it consisted of a lander as well as a balloon aerobot. And the lander was identical to the last uh, handful of Veneras uh, from nine through 14, and so it included a litany of instruments, a, uh, a mass spectrometer, a gas chromatograph, a hygrometer to measure water content. Uh, a gamma ray spectrometer, a UV spectrometer, a fluorescent spectrometer, right? I mean, I wanted to kind of throw everything on there, uh, as well as a, a sampling drill on the same package that contained the X-ray uh, spectrometer. Uh, it had uh, temperature and pressure sensors, an aerosol analyzer, as well as uh, a couple of nephilometers to measure the concentration of suspended particles. And that was actually... Uh, an instrument developed by France and the United States. And so this was part of a uh, much bigger kind of consortium, right? Because like all of humanity was kind of throwing things at Halley's Comet. And so uh, this this mission in particular had like a whole bunch of countries like Austria, Hungary, uh, Poland, um, all kind of getting in on the game uh, to directly help contribute to the mission. And so it was a, uh, a nighttime uh, entry and descent and landing. And uh, unfortunately for the lander, bad turbulence triggered many of the experiments early so that, I mean, it was trying to sample with the drill while it was still, you know, how many, some number of kilometers above the surface. So that doesn't quite work. And uh, at the end of the day, only the mass spectrometer ended up returning uh, useful data. And so as is typical on the Venusian surface, uh, once it actually touched down, it had about 56 minutes until it was no longer capable of doing anything. And so that was the lander, another kind of Venera. Now, the thing that makes this, I think, one of the most uh, mind-blowing space missions, when I first learned about this, I thought, you know, are you kidding me? Like, humans actually had done this. Uh, but yeah, is the uh, balloon aerobots. So the balloon aerobot package, uh, its first shoot deployed, and it uh, was released from the rest of the descent module at 61 kilometers altitude. And then a second chute deployed uh, shortly later at 55 kilometers to actually uh, extract the furled balloon. And it inflated one kilometer later. And after it reached 50 kilometers, the ballast was ejected, which kind of made it float back up to 53-54, where it floated stably for the remainder of the mission. And this is right where the uh, clouds of... uh, uh, Venus are the kind of really thick cloud bands, and so uh, these are uh, sulfuric acid and water uh, clouds. And so, if you ever see kind of those uh, interesting, you know, talks about whether or not humans want to have, you know, some kind of floating Venusian city, or not necessarily city, but some kind of floating Venusian craft for humans to actually stay in, or 
you know, where could there be life uh, in Venus? Um, these kind of cloud decks are kind of where people are talking about. And so the balloon was inflated with helium uh, and had a hanging gondola beneath where you had your antenna and your instruments and everything. So as you can imagine, right, the, the balloon was, uh, the balloon package was located towards the top of the uh, descent module. Uh, so it could get away from the lander as the lander kept going down. And uh, the way they arranged it was essentially as a, a donut, right, toroidal shape around the antenna, which kind of sits at the top of the lander. And so this kind of, yeah, donut is what uh, ended up coming off and then releasing the balloon. And um, it was made of a Teflon cloth matrix coated with a uh, Teflon film. And so there was some diffusion between the helium inside the balloon and the Venusian atmosphere. But uh, that was pretty low. Um, it was kind of within the tolerances they'd expected. And in, in any event, they figured that the battery would die anyway. But that did mean that it actually uh, descended a little bit while it was floating in the atmosphere. But as I mentioned, right, this was a nighttime landing. But once it made it to daytime, that heated the gas in the balloon, which ended up causing it to regain some altitude and offset. Uh, basically, it only descended, I think, half a kilometer due to this diffusion. Uh, with the gas uh, leaking essentially out. Now, how long is a day on Venus? Like, what's I thought oh, it was it's ridiculous. Yeah, because yeah, so, a Venusian so it... day is not only is Venus orbiting uh, retro or rotating retrograde, so the sun rises in the west, sets in the east, but it's slowed down to where I think the equatorial, like the physical velocity at the equator, is four miles per hour. So right. it's something like two hundred and seventy Earth days, somewhere in that ballpark. So you're saying that, that this thing passed from night into day, so it must have... Ah, well, actually, and this was um, brought up by uh, Kyle. it actually went one-third of the way around the planet, one-third of the circumference. And that's because uh, Venus's atmosphere is super-rotating. So the atmosphere is moving much, much faster than the surface is. And so the atmosphere only takes about four Earth days to go around once. Oh, I see. I would not have expected that. All right. There yeah, you go. That's the it's answer. Weird. <laughs> yep. And that, and that, yeah, that's such a cool thing to bring up because, I mean, it's a, it's a really cool word, super rotating atmosphere. I mean, yeah. I like it. And so the, the gondola where the instruments were is, uh, you know, 1.2 meters high. Uh, it was painted with a white coating that resisted corrosion by sulfuric acid and increased the surface albedo because even if you're not going to the kind of, crushing pressures and temperatures on the surface, you still are basically immersing yourself in a very uh, corrosive environment. And uh, here's where the clue came in. Uh, the instruments on the uh, balloon aerobot uh, and possibly, uh, don't correct burn me because I'm not saying I know this, <laughs> but I think uh, the Venera instruments themselves tended to have these kind of longer sampling rates. So yeah, so the instruments had a sampling rate of 75 seconds, and so that's where the clue came in. So they were basically waiting over a minute between each uh, uh, sample that was happening. And as uh, Ben Haller uh, alluded to in his uh, limerick, that you know it would basically transmit this data in between two carrier signals at uh, 4 BPS for uh, 270 seconds. And so that's how it was sending back the information, and we had a kind of uh, VLBI, Very Long Baseline Interferometry Network, uh, to pick this up because this was, you know, the 1980s. 
And so the balloon floated for 46.5 hours. So if you did the math, that's enough for it to make it about a third of the way around uh, the planet. And uh, as expected, the battery uh, was the limiting factor in that case. This is so cool that it makes you wonder why. I mean, we I, I guess because we kind of know what we need to know, I, I suppose. But I really mm. want to send another balloon to Venus, you know? I know, like, right? How cool would that be? Like, why is that not a thing that's being done? I mean, we're sending a drone to Titan, but that's, you know, we've still got like 15 plus years until we actually see anything from it. But mm -hmm. Venus is closer. There's still a lot, we you know, to learn about it. And so uh, I wish they would have a, uh, you know, we, we keep sending orbiters there, but let's, you know, let's bring a, uh, if not a lander, then at least bring a, a descent or a, a balloon with it too. You know, just drop the balloon in there. I think that the balloon might be more interesting just because it'll last longer. Because, uh, I mean, mm -hmm. a lander, I don't, what's the best you could do, really? I mean, realistically, how long can any lander survive on the surface of Venus? I mean, mm -hmm. you have like, you, I mean, maybe you could do a couple hours, right? You think? I think, yeah. I I want to say, I don't know if anything made it a full two hours, but I'm sure no. one of them might have made it longer than an hour. A couple of them might have made it longer than an hour. Yeah, it's a hellish landscape. But up in the clouds, I hear, you know, it's not too bad. So if you get yeah. the right altitude. Yeah. Just deal with the uh, the sulfuric acid and your, your yeah, you got temperatures that. and pressures aren't the problem. <laughs> so that was the uh, the descent uh, part of the mission. But, of course, um, the probe, uh, the rest of the Vega 1 probe headed off to Halley's Comet and uh, arrived there in March of 1986. Uh, but, of course, that is a that's a mission for another Another This Week in Space Flight. So I do want to give a little shout-out to Cy Kyle, uh, who gave one of the correct answers, that he also noted that December 15th is his birthday. And so happy early birthday, Cy Kyle. Happy birthday, Cy Kyle. And uh, what, then, is our clue for next week? It might uh, bear a striking resemblance to last week's clue, actually. <laughs> Maybe it will. Next week in 1973... What's the point of a space telescope with a lifetime of less than a week? All right. Yeah. So we got a theme going on here. Yeah, <laughs> we're being clever. <laughs> if you think you know what that clue is in reference to, and again, that's next week in 1973, what's the point of a space telescope with a lifetime of less than a week? Give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right. Pushing on to upcoming spaceflight events, just two launches. That's all we got. Uh, so what's the first one? So our first one is a PSLV-QL. Uh, which will be launching uh, the RISAT-2BR1, as well as some other uh, satellites. RISAT-2BR1 is a, uh, you know, this is ISRO, and this is a uh, satellite imaging uh, mission using uh, active synthetic aperture radar. And so uh, there's uh, another satellite up right now called RISAT-2, and this one is intended to provide continuity of service. And the, uh, as I alluded to, there's a number of other uh, small satellites for international customers uh, ride-sharing on board there. And so you can expect to see this launch, hopefully, on December 11th uh, at 0955 UTC with a window from 0930 to 1130 UTC. And uh, as is typical of Israel flights, this will be launching out of the Sadish Dawan Space Center uh, first launch pad. And next up on December 17th, that is the launch of a Soyuz STA with a frigate upper stage, and that is launching CSG-1 and Cheops. <gasps> oh, snap! <laughs> Kiops, it, I think it's pronounced Kiops because it's Egyptian. Yeah, it's a it's an exo hunting telescope. 
Exo, or, sorry, exo oh. hunting, exoplanet hunting telescope. Yeah, we had uh, mentioned this before, and it's finally launching. So that's awesome. And um, and interestingly, I did not know this. Uh, the whole goal is not necessarily to hunt for exoplanets, but this is designed to measure the radii of exoplanets. Ah. That's interesting. That's very specific. I didn't I didn't know that. I see the character. That's good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so that's launching on December 17th at 0854 and 20 seconds UTC. And that's launching from the Soyuz Launch Complex in Kourou. So that's launching from South America. So, yes, Soyuz out of South America with a really cool exoplanet measuring satellite. Nice. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Which means it's time to deal with the show, and we'd like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patch t-shirts and hoodies you can talk about the show with other listeners on twitter and reddit we're orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at the orbitalmechanics.com so that is all and we will see you next time on orbit until then later goodbye everybody see ya good bed impression <laughs>